Hey, have you ever noticed that the Curious About Cannabis podcast doesn't have any of those annoying ads or corporate sponsors like you see in a lot of other podcasts? Well, there's good reason for that. It's not like we don't get approached by people, which we do. We get approached by all sorts of companies in the cannabis industry and beyond that want to run ads on our podcast or sponsor us in exchange for product promotions and that sort of thing. But we've really steered clear of that um, for several reasons. I mean, one is we want to make sure that we are able to maintain a certain level of integrity that we're striving for. We want to make sure that, you know, we're able to have the conversations that we want to have without worrying about upsetting some sponsor or advertiser that we're dependent on. And we want to make sure that we're able to achieve the level of quality that we're striving for. And what that means is, at least for now, we feel like we need to do things ourselves. The consequence of that is that the future and growth of the show is entirely dependent on the support we receive from our listeners and viewers like yourself. And right now, we really need your help. In order to keep this show going, we need to get some support. And this doesn't even necessarily mean financial support. There are all sorts of free ways that you can help promote the show and ensure that we're able to continue and grow and become even better. One of the easiest ways is just tell other people about the podcast. Turn your friends and family onto it. Post about it on your social media. Post about it on your blog, or if you have your own podcast, talk about it. But just spread the word. That's one of the easiest things you can do to really help us out. And it, it goes further than you think it might. Another way that some people choose to support us is by becoming a member on our Patreon at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. And if you become a patron, there you can get access to a members-only podcast feed where you can get access to exclusive episodes that don't appear on the normal podcast. You get access to early releases of the episodes that do appear on the public feed. And you also get access to extended episodes. So sometimes when I have to edit episodes down, sometimes I have to cut out some significant chunks uh, to get things into a reasonable time frame. I'm now capping all of the podcast episodes off at an hour and a half. Expanded episodes will only be available for our patrons. And that's just one of the several ways I'm trying to figure out to say thank you to our supporters that have been keeping this show going. If you want to learn more about the ways you can support the show, go to cacpodcast.com slash support. And don't forget, if you want to become a patron and get access to that members-only podcast feed, you can do that at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Hey everybody, this is Jason with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. just want to give you a brief introduction to this episode because I think it'll provide a little more context going into it that hopefully will help you, one, understand the content of the episode a little better, and hopefully will help you appreciate some of that content a little more as well. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Angus of The Real Seed Company again for the second time on the podcast. And if you haven't heard our first episode, we first spoke in episode three of the podcast. And we spoke all about cannabis taxonomy and the dwindling biodiversity of cannabis varieties and the illusion of genetic diversity among modern cannabis hybrids. And fast forward a little bit of time, a paper came out in this year, 2020, that directly addressed these issues. And that paper is called 
a classification of endangered high-THC cannabis domesticates and their wild relatives by John McPartland and Ernest Small. So we both read this paper, we're emailing each other, had all sorts of ideas, we're really excited, and we decided to get together for a podcast episode to talk through our thoughts about the, the paper. And after listening to the episode, after we recorded it, we both realized that, one, we failed to even mention the title of the paper we were talking about. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. And then um, we also didn't really summarize a lot of key points of the paper until about halfway through our conversation. And so we were a little worried that anyone listening that's coming in from uh, with no context, that they might get a little lost. So in just a minute or two here, I'm going to very, very quickly summarize what this paper presents, and then I'll leave you to the episode to listen to us talk about it. So in this paper, which I'll repeat the title again, it's A Classification of Endangered High-THC Cannabis Domesticates and Their Wild Relatives. Within this paper, McPartland and Small present a taxonomical model for cannabis, a way of categorizing cannabis uh, that consists of one species, cannabis sativa, two subspecies, sativa and indica, so cannabis sativa subspecies sativa, cannabis sativa subspecies indica, and within the subspecies indica, all of the high THC varieties of cannabis fit within there among several varieties. The subspecies indica contains four primary varieties that have been identified so far, and within our extended conversation, you'll hear that, um, you know, we have some ideas how they're could possibly be more varieties, but these four varieties of cannabis sativa subspecies indica are as follows. Variety indica, which would be most similar to what we colloquially refer to as sativas. These would be true South Asian domesticates that have narrow leaflets with a leaflet length to width ratio of greater than six, which means that the length is at least six times that of the width and then we have variety Himalayensis, which would be kind of the wild-type version of these indicas. Then we have variety Afghanica, which would be kind of true Central Asian domesticates and what we colloquially would kind of refer to as indicas. And these would be plants that have leaflet length-to-width ratios of less than six, so these leaflets are wider and broader. And then we have variety Asperima, which is kind of the wild-type version of these Afghanica plants. And basically, this paper pre presents a botanical key for identifying these plants in the hope that by being able to organize these plants and identify them, we might be able to preserve the genetics and ultimately preserve some of this dwindling biodiversity. And really, this paper is a call to action for people to really start wrapping their heads around how to talk and categorize these plants so that we can get to the project of saving um, this biodiversity. So in a nutshell, that's what's going on with this paper. Uh, we're not going to talk much about cannabis sativa subspecies sativa, um, but if you really um, want to know the drill down on that, it's basically uh, two varieties of subspecies sativa. There's sativa and spontanea. A spontanea would uh, be what most people would refer to as ruderalis. I'm not going to get into the, the details of that. Read the paper, read the supplementary material that goes along with McPartland and Small's paper, and it'll expand more on that. But our focus is really on subspecies indica and these high THC land race cannabis varieties. So that's 
that's pretty much it. And as far as how this relates to the cannabis you're going to get in the dispensary, as Angus will say in the episode, um, it means very little. All of the cannabis that's in the medical markets and adult use markets are all extreme hybrids. And this whole idea of differentiating indica sativas and everything, it doesn't even make sense um, in that context. Um, so anyway, that's a summary of the context for this. Once again, the paper that we're talking about is a classification of endangered high THC cannabis domesticates and their wild relatives by John McPartland and Ernest Small. I recommend you look that paper up and read it before listening to this episode if possible. And also go back and listen to episode three of the Curious About Cannabis podcast where you can hear the first conversation that Angus and I had about land race, cannabis varieties, um, and biodiversity and all of that. And with that, I will leave you to the episode. So thanks so much for tuning in. And as always... Stay curious. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, Today, I am really, really stoked. I am joined with one of my early guests and friends that I was able to talk to at the in the early days of the podcast, Angus from The Real Seed Company. Uh, thanks so much, Angus, for being willing to come back on. We've got some exciting stuff to talk about. Oh, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's a really exciting paper, this. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, so what we're uh, going to be talking about today relates to our first conversation that we had, um, which is all about, um, well, our first conversation went in a lot of directions, but um, talking about cannabis taxonomy. So there's a paper that came out just this year, uh, by John McPartland and Ernest Small, both of who we talked about in our uh, first conversation. And specifically, this paper relates to um, land race varieties of cannabis and uh, talks about the importance of preserving those genetics. So um, this has really come around full circle, and I'll go ahead and prepare people and say that between the actual paper and the supplemental material there's about like 150 pages worth of uh, material to go through it's essentially yeah. it's essentially a book <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but uh angus what um before we get into the nitty-gritty details of uh what was presented here and uh, my thoughts and your thoughts and kind of how it meshes with your experience in the field um uh, what were your initial impressions upon uh reading this paper well, I mean, it's um, so far as the taxonomy goes, my instincts has always been to defer to the experts. And as far as I can see, Ernest Small is is really, you know, the taxonomist to defer to. He's um, specializes in all in, in all kinds of different species, but he's uh, been publishing about it since the early seventies. All, all the kind of legislation is based on his work. Um, <clears throat> so I was fascinated to see that he has come around to the view that. The, the two main domestic domesticates, the two the two sort of cultigens of uh, subspecies indica, are now do merit formal recognition as uh, as uh, varieties in the in the strict uh, botanical sense. And you know, he's, uh, they, they've done between them, McPartland and Small have done the work to sort of justify that. Clearly, they've been looking at herbarium collections all around the world. It seems, and I think they say it's about one thousand one hundred different accessions they've they've looked at and yeah clearly they're satisfied that this is justified and, and and also you know this is more than just a sort of um pedantic exercise it's uh actually quite important 
to get people to start taking conservation of these plants seriously. Because if, if, if you look on the uh, GeneSys database, I think there are about 1,400 accessions of uh, cannabis sativa, the species, um, in, in gene banks around the world. But out of those, there's, I forget the exact number, but it's a, a piddling amount. I mean, there's four or something accessions of, sub, of subspecies indica. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, oh, five. I'm sorry. So five. Wow. Five. Yeah. Um, so this is a you know really serious situation. I mean, this is an incredibly important plant, and uh, it, it's it's it's. Uh, I think they actually understate how 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 critically endangered it is. I mean, they m mostly what they talk about are sort of anecdotal examples of of people introducing hybrids or, or non actually not hybrids. Just most of the examples they give are from the seventies and eighties. So, um, and, and mm -hmm. mostly seem to involve people bringing. Um, they talk about one uh, guy, I forget his name, who who's, who's says he bought some Mexican seeds to Afghanistan in the in the early 70s. And then they, they mentioned that I think Cherniak or someone talks about bringing um, Afghan land races to Nepal in the 80s. But, uh, you know, what they don't talk about is is the whole seed industry with the, the online online seed industry. And if you were to look at the the shipping lists of, of your average Dutch or British um, seed company, it would make for horrifying reading. I mean, the the, the online sort of uh, internet commerce has basically yeah, it's, yeah, it's only yeah. just, it's only just arriving in places like India and, and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, I mean, Amazon's just opened up some huge um, uh, business park sort of type of affair in in Hyderabad in India, I think. So they're all geared up for um, online commerce coming to India. So in the next couple of years, uh, God knows what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's certainly already started uh, people shipping hybrid seeds into India and places. Yeah. But I mean, we're really looking at a, a race against time. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a serious situation. So this is part of getting people to take it seriously. I think it's quite an important mm -hmm. part of it to persuade some um, people like the Millennium Seed Bank and so on to, I mean, who've, who've got one, one accession of cannabis, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah. really not good enough. Um, they looked at um, a lot of different factors because technology has changed. So they they looked at not just morphology, not just um, chemical profiles, but also genetics. And when they looked at chemical profiles, they focused on THC CBD ratios because concentration can be influenced by all sorts of factors. So that doesn't really make sense to focus on concentration. But THC CBD ratios are more genetically controlled, so they focused on that. They also looked at uh, terpenoids, which I thought was great, um, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But they noticed some patterns um, around um, how certain um, varieties uh, seem to lack key um, types of terpenes that give them their characteristic smells that people throughout you know millennia have have noticed um, as cannabis has been evolving and changing um, that in certain areas of the world, cannabis seems to be more sweet and, you know, other areas of the world, cannabis seems to be more skunky and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So they, they kind of honed in on that. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of pass it off to you if you want to kind of explain um, the new taxa and particularly also i'm interested to hear how this has affected your work in collecting these land race strains because what i noticed was you immediately after this paper went out um tried to provide clarity around your seed catalog 
to help people understand what your seeds would be classified as under the new model, um, you know, to the best, you know, of your ability, which I thought was a very, um, very cool thing to do. I didn't notice any other seed companies doing that. Uh, I still haven't noticed any others actually doing it and especially as quickly, um, as you implemented that change. So do you mind explaining, um, what's changed? Um, and, um, and what, do people really need to take away from this if they're really interested in trying to understand the differences in these varieties and the new names that they're going to see on your website and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've tried in my sort of um, layman's way to apply their new uh, formal um, taxa to, to, to what I've collected. Um, and, it, and it's tricky because the areas I've been to and, and know well uh such as pakistan for example right at the intersection of where um you know sativa and indica meet so i mean just to just just to give the actual names uh yeah the wild the wild type central asian populations the wild type sort of uh putative ancestral populations they're calling var asparima and then the wild type south asian populations they're calling var himalayensis and um, the, the the meeting point of those two is more or less somewhere around the Kunar River, which separates uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, in my experience up in the mountains mm. in northern Pakistan, most of what we've seen are the Var Himalayensis. That's not to say there there aren't uh, the Asparima type there, you know, as in with the the um, obovate. Uh, oblanceolate sorry is the is the better term oblanceolate leaves mm -hmm. so that those classic sort of indica shapes i'm sure they yeah. are up in chitral because i know other people have, have have seen them up there but um what i experienced back in like 2007 when i was there in pakistan it it, it made me very confused because i'm not a botanist so what i was looking at i was thinking you know this whole indica sativa thing it doesn't make sense to me but that's because i was in pakistan where these two uh types of plant meet so I was seeing a lot of intermediate. Oh. I was seeing a lot of intermediate type okay. domesticates, uh, and and I, uh, which seemed to be didn't seem to fit neatly into this this uh, uh, the colloquial indica sativa thing. And of course, the reason for that is this is basically a, a the zone of maximum diversity for for, for subspecies indica, and uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know after a couple of years, it dawned on me, uh, much as Clark mentions in his work. Uh, that a lot of these domesticates are hybrids between land races. Um, in fact, many land races, probably most land races, are hybrids between other land races. But what you have in somewhere like Chitral in, uh, in Yarkun Valley, which is the upper reaches of the Kunar River, if, if you grow seeds from there, you'll see a whole spectrum within one uh, land race, as it were, you, you'll see these big sativa type plants, you'll see these uh, mm. small um, indica type plants with the classic indica leaflets. And this is growing out one accession of seeds, you understand? So you go to a village like Patrangaz in, uh, in Yarkun, which is the famous uh, charis producing village in Yarkun. You take a, one batch of seeds from one farmer there, you grow them out, you'll see a whole range of variation. And that's because these appear to be uh, hybrids uh, between land races. And um, you, you'll also see very, very big, four-meter-tall uh, plants with indica-type leaflets. 
and not being a botanist, I was baffled by this. Of course, if I was a botanist, I would have yeah. realized that what I'm looking at is a, is, is clearly a hybrid uh, a population. Um, uh, it, but this is nothing new. If you look at the um, lists of accessions on the supplementary material uh, for this new study, um, you'll see that they were seeing these intermediate forms uh, from accessions back in the 19th century and uh, and and um, even Vavilov was finding them. So he uh, collected some plants in what's now called Nuristan, which is also just down just down. Uh, if you if you follow the Kunar River from its source in Yarkun down through Chitral into Afghanistan, you get to this place Nuristan, which uh, was in Vavilov's time was called Kafiristan, and mm. and uh, in it hit one of his accessions of a, I think it was a domesticate from Nuristan was uh, is, is uh, clearly an intermediate, uh, is, is clearly a hybrid between an Indica domesticate and a Sativa domesticate, as you'd expect, because this is the frontier between these two populations from Central Asia and South Asia. So um, yeah, now, now it all makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I sort of, uh, <laughs> I was very puzzled by it. Uh, and, and also, I'd, I'd, the other thing I'd screwed up was that I was relying far too heavily on Vavilov's accounts of his own uh, material. And, he, and he's notoriously inconsistent and he changes his mind about things and he hedges on things and he'll have one idea at one point and another idea at another point. But uh, it, I, I had sort of assumed because he said in his, I forget if it's the 1929 or the, I think it's the 1924 account. Uh, well, anyway, in, in his earliest account of his expedition, he... Um, he, he says, I hadn't seen these oblanceolate, as in indica, leaflets anywhere else in Afghanistan, except for in the Kunar Valley where nobody's growing cannabis. Now, he was wrong. Mm -hmm. that, of course, people probably were growing cannabis around there. But he was also wrong in that his accessions from northern Afghanistan, when they were grown out by Sarah Briankova, they uh, actually did show indica type leaflets. So <laughs> when, when, I, when I looked at his own uh, tables and stuff in, in his paper, he was, he, 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 he was saying, oh, the only, the, only, the only plants he listed as having broad leaflets were the Chinese ones. Now, he gives the length measurements for the Afghan, Afghan land races, but he doesn't mention anything about the mm -hmm. width of them, of, of the leaflets, and, or, or, or the shape. Well, he, no, he does mention something about the shape. He says he claims that nothing else had these oblanceolate leaf, leaflets. <laughs> Actually, when when uh, McPartland went and looked in the herbaria, uh, he he in, in the Vavilov herbarium, he found that um, lo and behold, they actually did have the classic indica leaflet shape. Uh, and just to say, when we're talking about the leaflet shapes, um, Small and McPartland have got a kind of formal system for establishing what an indica leaflet shape is, and it involves measuring the fan leaves, as they're called, sort of. Uh, at the base of the inflorescence, you, you look at the central leaflet and then you take a measurement of the widest point of that leaflet and how far that is along the leaflet. So they do a ratio, basically, a, a six to one or something. Right. It, it, anyway, I'm, I'm, anything involving numbers completely throws me. But they've got a formal, a formal basis for establishing what, a, what the ratio is. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a. I'm, I've got the paper here just to refresh my memory. It's yeah. um, 
the length over the width is usually greater than six. So over six to one, that ratio of um, length to width for uh, cannabis sativa subspecies indica. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's sort of, uh, I think a lot of people in the back of their mind when they, when they were looking at Ernie Small's previous system where you just lump um, indica cultigens and sativa cultigens into this one uh, subspecies indica via indica, they all sort of, I, I mean, I, it, was always, it was always niggling at me, which is that the argument is, well, these are both indica and, indicas and sativas are both domesticates. So mm -hmm. the, 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 the conservative only small original argument was that they're both domesticates, so they're not meriting, they don't merit uh, formal classification in varieties of their own. But I was always thinking, well, but this this leaflet shape, that leaflet shape is surely not something that people have selected for. It's surely yeah. indicative of natural selection of, of, of something that's happened independent, independent of humans. Now, I mean, because there, there are many other traits of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of, of sativa cultigens and indica cultigens mm -hmm. that are clearly are the result of, of, uh, of human selection, such as... Um, uh, Afghan, you know, hash plants have these uh, resin glands that very easily detach from the bract yeah. and from the leaf, and that's clearly something that's been favoured by centuries of of uh, sieving sieving hashish, uh, for example. I mean, there's a, there's many other aspects of it, but th th that clearly indicate uh, human involvement. But um, anyway, you know, this is this has finally solved the puzzle for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. McPartland had already um, pointed out, I think back in like 2011 or something, a long time ago now, um, he pointed out that our vernacular needed to change and that it would make more sense to call these things Afghanica. But now it's really getting into a more formalized way where you can actually apply a dichotomous key and identify these things. Yep. And then what we refer to as sativa plants are now considered um, these uh, this variety of indica. And then um, between those, we have the domesticated sort of versions of those and the quote unquote wild type versions of those. So just to just to kind of make sure that we synthesize all of that in case anyone listening has gotten confused at all, the drug type varieties, you've got four varieties. The two main ones to pay attention to is what you used to think of as indica should be formally called cannabis sativa subspecies indica variety afghanica and then what we normally talk about colloquially as sativa you should think of as cannabis sativa subspecies indica variety indica um, yeah and, uh, and just, then just just, I, just to stop you sorry but the, the yeah. crucial thing is is that this this all applies only to authentic land races so yes you, you, yes 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 none of this applies to indicas and sativas as 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 you you buy in the coffee shop in Amsterdam or, uh, or, you know, in a, in a dispensary in, in, in North America, uh, because al almost certainly all of those are hybrids of these two formal, uh, varieties. So this is all only exactly. applying to Asian, Asian populations. Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, very, very, very important point to note. Um, and that's something I wanted to get into because in our first conversation, we talked about how most of the cannabis that, the majority of people in the world are exposed to 
um, has such little diversity at all mm-hmm. and that there's this illusion of diversity. And I was really pleased to see that McPartland and Small called that out. And they yeah. explicitly talk about that um, all of this cannabis floating around that, yeah, that we're colloquially calling indica and sativa in the dispensaries, usually that's only de- defined off of um you know, the THC CBD ratio or someone's subjective experience. They list, I love that they list the example of AK 47 as <laughs> this example of a, yeah. a strain that has won both the uh, sativa category and the indica category yeah. in um, some of these, yeah. these competitions. Um, but yeah, excellent point. I mean, anything, anyone listening that um, is getting cannabis from a dispensary and they hear people talk about indica and sativa, all of that is, I mean, it's just noise, really, um, because these plants have been hybridized so much, especially because of prohibition, um, you know, has really driven that uh, to a, a huge extent, but also just beyond prohibition, just for hundreds, thousands of years, the way that humans have selected these plants, we've we've ended up um, hybridizing them to the point that there's no meaningful distinction between them uh, when it comes to this level of formal categorization and everything um i mean the hope is and and they're that they do sort of um hedge on this a bit in the paper but the hope is that there are still uh yeah. land races out there and i and i my experience i think points to there still being authentic land races populations out there that that do still merit formal recognition and you know are representative of authentic uh domesticates so you know um there's another question and i interrupted you before you got to it but with the um the ancestral putative ancestral po- mm-hmm. populations of asparima which is the virasparima which is the uh the wild type populations let's say wild type because wild mm-hmm. type is a good way to sort of hedge on whether these are truly aboriginal indigenous yeah. populations still or or whether they're representative of a mixing between domesticates and and aboriginal populations uh, but there's Asperima and then there's the Himalayensis. And, the, you know, the, quest, the big question is, are there true uh, Aboriginal populations of either still left? And I, and I think Small and McPartland are hopeful that they might, there might be places in South Asia, for example, where you might still have um, Var Asperima that hasn't been uh, affected by exchange of pollen with uh, uh, domesticated populations. Uh, if there are, they're probably somewhere over way in the far northeast of India, like Arunachal yeah. Pradesh or somewhere, which, as far as I know, doesn't have much of a history of cultivation. As for um, Varasparima, uh, the you know, ancestral indica wild type populations, I think it's pretty unlikely that you're going to find true Aboriginal populations of that. Uh, and, and the reason for this is that, again, if you look at that amazing map, you, you see it sort of... Uh, going from the Tian Shan up on the northern borders of northwest China, sort of curving down through the Pamirs, down through the uh, Afghan Hindu Kushes, where they have all the um, accessions of this fire Asparima type plant. Uh, all of those regions are regions where there's been cannabis cultivation for millennia. So the likelihood of uh, there being um, true true Aboriginal, uh, un- uh, pure populations of uh, Varasparima is pretty limited. Uh, uh, the same goes for the um, for the Indian Himalaya, from Indian Kashmir down through 
uh, Himachal and Uttarakhand, Nepal, all the way down through into Sikkim and into Bhutan. Uh, pretty much all those regions have a very long history of cultivation going back at least two and a half thousand years. So the chance of there being uh, wild type plants that are truly Aboriginal is, is uh, that, you know, that, as in haven't yeah. had exchanges of genetics with domesticates is very, very uh, small indeed. Uh, that, that, that sort of um, brings me to some criticism or well, questions I have about the, um, some of their paper, but maybe we can leave that till later. But uh, just to say, I mean, uh, I, I thought it might be worth kind of uh, sort of um, zooming out a bit, just because I, I know from my own experience, it's, it's very difficult to uh, contextualize all of this, um, yeah. with, with, or rather to sort of understand it all without contextualizing it all. So, I mean, this, this whole process uh, of, of the creation of cannabis itself, uh, as it were, it, you know, this goes back sort of 57 million years or so when India wasn't even part of Eurasia. It was sort of drifting off the coast of Australia somewhere. And then it, 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 it kind of floated in and smashed into Sumatra, it smashed into Burma, and then eventually 57 million years ago or 50 million years ago actually smashed into Tibet. And, and and then began this huge process of the Himalaya and the Tibetan plateau uh, uplifting, and then this this caused this radical change in the climate of Eurasia, of, of Central Asia, and um, it, it resulted in the kind of creation of a steppe climate on the other side of the Himalaya in, in places like Qinghai, which is northeastern Tibet, and Xinjiang. This this was the, what then caused um, cannabis, which didn't at this point exist, to diverge from its nearest ancestor, humulus, the, the hop, mm -hmm. and um, so that, that's that sort of puts this in context. I mean, when we're talking about humans, uh, we, humans didn't even exist at this point. We didn't come into the story until the very, very, very last tiny kind of fraction of it. Yeah. So 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 humans aren't don't even feature in this yet. And 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 uh, so from from Qinghai, which is this um, part, it's it's in what was once called Ando, so north northeastern Tibet, and this is uh, um, uh, 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 a sort of steppe climate you've got created here. From from there, uh, interestingly, it appears that cannabis kind of headed off westwards first. Uh, probably yes, yeah. in seeds in the stomach of birds migrating and this kind of thing. And it, it, anyway, fast forward another 40 odd million years or, and it, six million or so years ago, you find cannabis suddenly appears on the Western steppe over near Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, it was considerably later that it actually ended up in uh, China proper. And I'm going to have to check my notes here because I can't actually remember when it was, but uh, it, it it first appears in uh, China. Oh, by the way, I, I, just to just to clarify, it was 27.8 million years ago that cannabis diverged from the hop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and right. uh, 6.3 million years ago, it's made it across to Europe, as in Europe in the sense of the Western Steppe. So mm -hmm. it's about kind of Ukraine, Russia type sort of area, uh, southern Ukraine and southern Russia kind of area, and then. Uh, 2.6 million years ago is when you first find it in China proper in, in uh, Ningxia. Uh, so, you know, human, when, by the time humans uh, rock up into Eurasia, uh, sort of 60,000 
or hundred thousand years ago, sixty thousand right. years ago, cannabis is is across much of Eurasia, uh, except for Southeast Asia. But <clears throat> you know, it, this again um, all fits into Vavilov's picture mm-hmm. which is that cannabis was probably domesticated at several different sites because it certainly was available to be domesticated at several mm-hmm. dis- different sites in, across Eurasia. Um, but yeah, so that I hope is some sort of context. But again, when we're talking about actual domestication, that's even later still. You know, this is, um, we're into the Holocene now, kind of a 10,000 years ago when it could even possibly have happened. But there's no evidence for it really happening until, I mean, you get to some finds from Japan about, mm-hmm. uh, and if, if I can just switch to uh, BC, BCE now, because I, I find it really hard to think in terms of thousand years ago once we get into this kind of thing. So, right. I, so th- th- the beginning of sort of domestication of, uh, of food crops and stuff, we're talking kind of 10,000 BC um, in the Levant and stuff, and similarly over in China. But you don't see any, I mean, cannabis doesn't really get, we don't see any indication yet. There's no evidence yet of it being domesticated properly until uh sort of let me check but i think it's like in 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 the in the, over in the sort of um towards europe it's we're talking about kind of 3000 bce ish that mm-hmm. kind of that kind of point there's 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 some in some domesticated pollen probably yeah. associated with the yamnaya culture and yeah then, i know um, um there are sorry, records yeah. that go back to like 2700 bc i know is one number um yeah, where they uh, and I, I think it's been pushed. I'm I'm sure it goes further back than that, but as far as what we have actual, you know, pretty good evidence for, yeah, uh, we know we can go as far back as three thousand BC. Yeah, it's um, yeah, you're you're right. It's uh, there's there's the finds in in Yangshao in in China, uh, which are sort of um, or the Yangshao culture, sorry, uh, in China, which that they've got definitely clearly domesticated seeds. But I mean, even this is kind of tricky because, um, you know, uh, uh, there was certainly a kind of um, hunter-gatherers themselves probably would have unconsciously been domesticating cannabis because of the type of plant it is. It was really well suited to that because because it it, it naturally grows on um, kind of uh, nitrogen-rich soils next to uh, rivers and stuff. And that was its natural environment. It, it 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 tended to that's what it that's where it likes to grow. So when people would have been there hunting and drinking and stuff, they probably would have picked up plants. Hunter gatherers, that is, would have picked up plants and then transported them back to their camps, where it then would have um, found a really favorable environment in kind of rubbish heaps and around you know where people were crapping and stuff. So already you have this unconscious um, process of people bringing back the types of plants they like to their um, living areas. So one of the really early finds from Japan, sort of 8,000 BCE, really interestingly, the seeds have no clear wild traits. They appear to be partly domesticated. Ah. So you've already got this kind of likely to have this sort of un- unconscious domestication mm-hmm. process. And, 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 and that, that, that trait of the seed being domesticated goes with the seeds staying inside the inflorescence. Yep. which is a which is an early uh you know that's that process takes centuries for uh, um uh, a, a crop to uh, for, for a, a wild plant that's being cultivated 
to become a proper domesticate, as in lose yeah. those wild traits, that process itself takes centuries. So yeah, I'm sure you're right that it, it actual domestication is likely to have been happening a lot earlier than the actual evidence we have for it. Um, right, yeah, and, and something I wanna you know point out too is this this whole idea of um you know trying to figure out if there are any um examples of true aboriginal cannabis you know still in existence um this is something that doesn't just affect cannabis this is something that um you know mcpartland and small point out that this is an issue affecting um all domesticated plants that we have today that there are very few domesticated crops that we work with now that we can go and and see you know a specimen of the the true aboriginal type that would later be you know turn you know artificially selected into what we see now shifting gears just a little bit something i wanted to ask you about mm. i wanted to see if something fit your experience uh with land races there so they they mention uh so we mentioned at the very beginning that one of the things that they examined were terpenes, uh, terpenoid content and uh, organoleptic characteristics of these land race varieties of cannabis. And in the paper, they say that South Asian land races often smell herbal or sweet, whereas Central Asian land races give off an acrid or skunky aroma. And they're basing that off of some of Robert Clark's work in the in the 80s has that been your experience that that distinction is is that strong that if you find land races from south asia they're going to be sweeter than those you find from central asia that that'll be skunkier i mean i know there you, we mentioned in our last conversation that cannabis grown in these different areas of asia are used for different purposes and they have different organoleptic traits and things that some you prefer to um you know, extract the resins and use those separately, whereas others like the ganja uh, varieties that, you know, you would just roll up and smoke into joints and they'll be pleasurable and flavorful. So I, I wanted to ask you about that, how that matches your experience. Well, I, yeah, I, I was slightly concerned when I, when I thought back through what I'd said with, in that earlier one, that I might have overstated the extent to which you can't uh, just um, uh, uh, smoke uh, um, uh, var afghanica indica type. Afghan plants mm -hmm. as bud because I have I have friends who who who, who cultivate uh, these pure well hopefully pure land races we've been getting from uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and do smoke them that way and, and say it's very nice so I you know I I I, I don't want to overstate the extent to which I've in any way sort of empirically investigated this stuff sure. mostly what I'm doing is collecting and 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 talking to people and reading books and stuff I'm not in a position to grow these plants myself. Uh, I, I rely on feedback from customers and stuff, so it's a, it's a it's a very sort of haphazard um, uh, sure. way of, of of getting a picture of it. But um, certainly the uh, those particular terpenes, I can't remember what they're called, but they're sort of alcohol set set sesquiterpenoid yeah sesquiterpenoid alcohols. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. Th that that's definitely something. Those sort of skunky aromas are definitely something that, in my experience, is associated with Central Asian. Uh, when I say Central Asian, I mean sort of north of the Kanar. But as in sort of the Hindu Kush, basically. Mm -hmm. You see, my, yeah. my personal experience of the Hindu Kush is is purely in uh, Chitral and then and and being in Peshawar and and getting uh, Afghan hashish and and hashish from the the Pakistani Hindu Kush and stuff whilst I was there and and being up in Chitral. So it's friends of mine like Lucas who've actually been to northern Afghanistan and, and then other friends of mine I work with who 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 know the area and uh, have contacts in the area. 
So uh, you know, I haven't I haven't sort of unlike Lucas, who's one of the people who collects for, for me, I haven't sort of walked around in fields and balcony stuff and, and smelled the plants and things. But yeah, everything we're seeing in terms of what we've collected it, it fits that pattern absolutely. The the, the one thing that that I, the, that I would say is that a, a lot, also a lot of what we what we're seeing uh, it, it does appear. Yeah, we've got pure var Afghanicas from 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 the accessions that we've got from there, but we also have a lot of what seem to be uh, um, uh, var indica var Afghanica hybrids. So mm -hmm. like the 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 domesticate that um, Afghans themselves call uh, Mazari Sharif or Mazari or Balki. Uh, um, it, it appears to be a very large plant, you know, which uh, um, uh, one extreme of variation, and I've got a photo of it on the website, has can have very uh, sativa type leaflets and be very tall. Mm. Uh, and then other other extremes from the same um, accession, you can have extremely uh, indica type varafganica plants. <clears throat> so, you know, and, and how exactly uh, the varindica, um, uh Genetics, or, or even if maybe they're not, maybe they're um, maybe there's influences from hemp cultivation in Uzbekistan that's right. hybridized with. You know, we don't we don't know yet, but um, this is another question mark in my mind about the um, the, the, the the pattern they paint because it, with the varasporima and varhimalensis and this uh, uh, reproductive barrier <clears throat> between the two of them, now it's, they've clearly made their case for that with the accessions, but. I wonder to what extent, um, to what extent it's it's the case that it, it seems to me that Varhimalensis can survive beyond that northern yeah. extent, uh, and, and and there's some indication of that in in the accessions they've analysed. But you know, it, it's it, um, the question is, can Varasporima sort of cross southwards? And mm -hmm. uh, they've got that one example from. Um, uh, from Kulu Valley, which suggests that it can, but I, I, I wonder again. What I mentioned about circularity. To what extent? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, what I wonder is, can the, c c what what you might have is phenotypic plasticity. So you know, this genetically varasporima populations, as they sort of move downwards into India, p perhaps they just uh, express uh, themselves uh, differently. Express, exactly, express themselves in a more Himalayansis way you know mm -hmm. um i mean that seems to be what's happened when you when people have introduced hybrid genetics into into milana in the modern era is that they end up sort of blending in partly they sort mm -hmm. of blend in with the with with you know I mean, it's i don't want to understate what how much of a bad thing that is they annihilate <laughs> the biodiversity but the phenotypically yeah. they express themselves in a, in a way that's appropriate to the uh, to the to the climate but i right. i totally digress from what you were asking me but, um, well, and it, you, you just touched on something that um, in the paper they talk about and in, in, in my book I mentioned, but just how quickly a cannabis plant, no matter how domesticated it may be, how quickly it can naturalize to whatever location it's in and start to exhibit uh, wild type traits, which makes all of this work that much more complicated. But um, within 40 to 50 generations of yeah. a plant of a cannabis plant, you can have it dramatically change how it's expressing itself. Go, going in going in one direction. That's we, we know that's yeah. we're going from a domesticate to a wild type phenotype. Right. It's not right. so clear how long it takes to go from a wild type phenotype to a domesticate because they haven't yes. actually yeah. studied that. But but yeah, it's it's very. It, I mean, 
what I've seen, uh, for example, someone um, who 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 uh, bought some of the Lebanese we got from Bekaa Valley, which incidentally is definitely a place uh, Lebanon where you've uh, had uh, a, a lot of hybridization going on, quite possibly between uh, uh, Varsativa um, hemp, you know, mm-hmm. and between uh, Var Indica and between Var Afghanica. I mean, I've spoken to uh, people I've spoken to. Uh, um, uh, 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 farmers in Lebanon who say that there was definitely a particular individual they can name names who who, who bought um, mm-hmm. Afghan seeds to Lebanon in the seventies. Uh, similarly, an, another uh, friend of mine uh, talks about bringing um, Balki genetics from northern Afghanistan to the Hindu, to the Pakistani Hindu Kush in the seventies and, and knows the names. But anyway, uh, so these are definitely high. Lebanon is definitely a hybrid. Uh, zone since at least the 13th century where you've had hybridization between land races and uh we we I, a customer of mine was growing out um lebanese seeds in a very humid environment um uh, uh against my advice but anyway <laughs> we'd grown them out and, and they they exhibited these extremely narrow uh leaflets you know mm-hmm. um, that makes sense yeah yeah and uh whereas uh, other people i knew were growing them in sort of um places like southern spain in and- andalusia mm-hmm. and stuff a very dry climate and uh, up, up in the mountains and they're expressing these much more sort of afghanica mm-hmm. type uh leaflets so you have this sort of instantaneous phenotypic plasticity uh, uh um uh, you know and it, it's what you'd expect from a plant that's evolved uh, high up in the mountains where you have these extremely changeable climates um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and to anyone listening, in case we haven't made it super clear, because there's a lot of things sometimes we have in our minds that other people might not quite catch on to, is that that climatic difference, the reason it's going to influence the not just the leaf structure, but also like node links and that sort of thing, yeah. is that if you're in a very humid envir- environment, the plant needs to breathe so that it doesn't get moldy and you know get attacked by uh, fungal pathogens and that sort of thing. Whereas in drier climates, plants can afford to be more dense, much more leaf tissue and everything um, because they don't have that selective pressure against them. There may um, be advantages to it, like sort of slower transpiration rates and yes, yeah, and, and that type of things. Uh, um, and 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 the uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you, but um, no, yeah. no, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that was clear because we mentioned several times about um varieties moving into like the monsoon areas and all these different things i just want to make sure that anybody yep. listening in case they hadn't quite pieced that together yet that they understand why the uh morphology is going to be affected um by those climates and and what you just talked about about um you know uh these varieties being moved around i i thought it was really cool how the paper in one paragraph talks about I mean, it's cool in a academic intellectual sense. It's devastating on another level. But um, talking about how um, people would brag about how they brought uh, the example I'm looking here is they brought Mexican gold into Afghanistan in the early 70s, and how they uh, what was the other one that they were bringing in Central Asian land races into South Asia um, in the 70s, and into Nepal in the 80s, and Jamaica and Thailand. And um, this, uh, it, it's it's interesting how our perspectives change the more we learn that at one time, that seemed like a really awesome, exciting thing to do, that we're yeah. taking land races from one place and bringing them to another place and seeing what they do together. And now 
we're looking at that and being like, oh, geez, like, what have we done? <laughs> you know, sort of thing of, uh, you know, we've we've so heavily contaminated uh, these gene pools with other land races. And I think that's something that um, sometimes people that aren't in so involved in, in all this work, um, it can sometimes be harder to appreciate because someone might think like, well, you take two land races together, like, you know, you've got these interesting genetics and you'll get something else interesting. Um, and so I could see why in the seventies with the understanding that we had at that time, um, that that was exciting. Um, but now we're looking back and seeing yeah. these things, Mexican gold, Panama red, all these other strains that were so popular in the sixties and seventies, that then got crossbred in Afghanistan, in these critical regions. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the the thing I'd say with the Afghan one is it was <clears throat> the only reliable source they quote there, uh, reliable or, is that uh, Beisler or something his name is, who's the actual guy who claims he did it. Uh, Pietri, the one who they quote, is also talking about it. I'm sure it's just a guy who'd read that book. Uh, he's not he's not as anecdotally, from what I'm mm -hmm. told, anyway, is uh, is not a reliable character. But then the um the uh, then there's an Italian guy who also talks about it. But I don't know to what I don't know what the Italian academic was basing his his opinions on. It, I mean, it, the, re the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, since 1979, there's no way people have, it's highly, it's highly unlikely people have been bringing uh, th that type of plant into Afghanistan because it's just, it's more or less been off limits. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, in, in a sense, the, the disaster that's happened in Afghanistan from, from, from that minor perspective is, is a good, is a good thing for cannabis because it sort of kept it away from that type of uh, mm -hmm. phenomenon. But yeah, I mean, uh, what I've seen in Nepal, um, uh, that there's there's one session we got from there uh, from a, um, a hashish producer who, um, which it, it it shows, I don't know, it, it I wouldn't say it shows any obvious signs of Afghan contamination in terms of it doesn't have those terpenes or anything like that. But it does have uh, markedly large uh, uh, leaves. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 my, my sense is that there's still uh, substantial zones of, of sort of Central and South Asia, and even Southeast Asia, where it's still possible to get pure land races. And 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 smaller McPartlands sort of a sort of at, at the end they say sort of optimistically we hope that is the case. Mm -hmm. And and I, and I, and I, I think it, I, I hope I hope they're right. And my experience su suggests they're right. But of course, I'm 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 judging all this from an untutored perspective and also i have a financial incentive to sort of present it that way so obviously i'm biased towards right. biased towards presenting it from that perspective but honestly i would say you know as dispassionately as i can uh, my my sense is that there are there are still populations that are unaffected and of course they're all away from the the places where foreigners tend to go and and also if, uh, just to continue that thought you know laos which is this uh, mm -hmm. very significant center of biodiversity for cannabis and of of uh, for land races uh that um was off limits for a substantial period from sort of 1975 until um uh you know the uh, late 90s it didn't really sort of start to open up to tourism although um i have spoken to one smuggler from the sort of tie stick heyday who says that a mm -hmm. friend of his did introduce uh hybrid genetics into uh central laos uh at one point for a, a commercial grow but mm -hmm. From what I've, you know, from from my, my senses, from having lived there, because I lived there for four or five years, I I, I didn't see any obvious signs of of foreign hybrids, uh, nothing you know 
struck me as being very obviously contaminated by them. Uh, everything I was seeing, um, and 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 the way the economy itself sort of worked with the commercial grows, it 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 was it's very isolated by and large from from the type of person who's going to do that. It's not to say that people haven't, you know, NGO workers and stuff who who live there did, mm-hmm. and and people who who sort of managed to get into the tourism industry. I know that you know, they people were did, did bring hybrid stuff in to grow in their gardens and things because you can get away with it in in Laos. In fact, you you can do it within the law now. They've liberalised that you can have six oh, plants wow. in your garden now. It doesn't matter because no one gives a I toss about that. it there. <laughs> but 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 it, it, it's um it, it's uh. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, uh, Lao friends of mine would talk about Safarang. You know, Safarang is like uh, foreign, uh, sorry, um, you know, Western, Western Ganja. You know, uh, it, so that people even knew about what it is, but it doesn't do very well there. You know, because it's just a particularly bad climate for it. If anything that's got remotely sort of um, mm-hmm. indicatory genetics just gets absolutely savaged. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the the, the local land races that they've got. Uh, perfectly adapted to to being grown there so if you're a commercial grower why would you want to screw up your crop with that kind of stuff if you can right if you can grow a field of the local land race um but yeah i mean uh, i'm 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 an optimist insofar as i think it is possible within the next couple of years at least to, Mm -hmm. to to collect representative original land races you know and 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 um land races that may have also been affected to some degree, but they're still worth collecting. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that's an important takeaway from all of this is that even if we have trouble finding uncontaminated, um, you know, sources of some of these land races, what does exist in whatever level of contamination it exists is still worth preserving, still worth collecting because the contamination issue is going to, just continue and get worse and worse and worse. Hybridization is going to continue and whatever can be captured now, regardless is important. But um, to begin to uh, wrap the conversation up, because I think that's a a really good um, segue. How is this research going to affect the real seed company going forward? Is it going to affect um, areas that you target? Um, varieties that you target any of that how how does all of this information affect the way you're thinking about the company um yeah i mean it's um always in my mind i'm sort of wondering to myself where makes most sense to go next um Mm -hmm. and and i've tried to jig everything towards um uh other other people who are actually from these places doing the collecting uh as much as i can so that i'm i'm not flying around so much and you know dumping tons of carbon in the air all the time and and you know also not having to do these huge sort of slogs across uh, uh, you know for months at a time which is is awesome in many ways and a huge privilege but also extremely hard work and makes it quite difficult yeah. to, to 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 do all the other work i've got to do at the same time anyway i i i've i've sort of um there are areas that i don't know anyone in that i am thinking of focusing on uh parts of the nepali himalaya and uh parts of northeast india that i'd like to have more of and uh, also we were hoping earlier this year to, to to collect across parts of india itself uh, southern india but then you know the the covid-19 thing happened and just completely yep. pulled that up but <laughs> but it, but i mean you know these um traditional 
Indian ganja domesticates uh, are, are really, really important. And uh, you know, uh, in India is more and more linked into internet commerce. So there's more and more hybrid genetics going in there. Um, so you know the chances of finding uh, of finding uh, the real thing are, are getting lower and lower each year. So mm-hmm. certainly I'll focus there. And wild type plants from northeast India are, 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 are something I'm particularly keen to get hold of. And um, you know generally we're moving more towards collecting uh, wild type seeds. Uh, it, it was something that was always of interest to me, but there was no sort of financial incentive to do it. But I think as the sort of level of understanding amongst aficionados mm-hmm. and collectors of, of their significance. It, increases then you know we'll, we'll, we'll get more of those um and i'm also keen to get hold of uh southeast asian hemp land races i'm hoping mm-hmm. our friends of mine can help me get hold of them uh you know and and, and uh, basically everywhere is of interest but um I, I personally would like to go up into central asia because it's it's not a part of the world I've, i haven't been to tajikistan and and all those mm-hmm. kind of places which are hugely important. I just have no idea to what extent it's feasible to collect seeds there. I don't. I have no idea what the law is on that kind of thing. So, and I don't know anyone there either. So, it, it, you know, that's a, that's another hugely consequential uh, place. Uh, you know, as as this study has demonstrated for uh, ancestral Indica uh, populations. Uh, I wish I could go to Xinjiang, but that's not happening. It's yeah. a complete <laughs> disaster zone. Um, I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then that's another part of this puzzle too, is you've got this, these other dynamics at play. It's not like you can just wander in and collect seed from plants. You've, there are, there are all sorts of conflicts going on and uh, economic devastation, all sorts of really, really hard things that, that affect this work. And, Something I really appreciated um, on your social media that I wanted to give you a chance to briefly talk about is how the Real Seed Company is working to try to support some of the locals um, that are in some of the areas that um, that you've been sourcing seed from. That uh, you know, before the podcast started, we were talking about how uh, COVID nineteen stuff obviously it's affecting everybody, but. Um, the media is not really shining much attention on a lot of these communities that are uh, really getting hit hard by this, that don't have the resources that a lot of um, countries might have, or a lot of the um, sort of privilege that a lot of places have um, to, you know. So anyway, I know that you've been doing food drops or, you know, helping uh, with supporting some of these food drops that have been happening in some of the local villages and other places um, where some of your work touches. So do you mind speaking a little bit to that? And if there's any way that any listeners can um, offer their own support to help support some of these families um, that are being affected um, economically or, you know, sick or don't have access to food, you know, all these sort of things um, that are very much connected to all of this work in the cannabis plant, um, let them know how they can get involved with that. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, um, th- this is always something I'm conscious of uh, in terms of collecting the seeds, because, you know, there's a, y- you could, if you were very unfair, sort of portray what I'm doing as a sort of form of colonial plunder in some ways, because I'm going and taking seeds from these places and making sure. money out of it. And, and I was always conscious of that. So I wanted to find ways to, 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 to get money back to people who are actually from these communities. So one way I've done that is just to actually get them to do the collecting and, and to give them a, a, a generous p- percentage of the retail price of what 
uh, of, of what we sell the seeds at. But um, another another way has just been that I have I have friends in many of these places because I've been visiting for you know over, mm-hmm. over many years uh, who who work in NGO uh, outfits there or, or, or who or who are just individuals who want to be able to help their community. So mm-hmm. in in the case of Chitral, for for example, that was. Um, from the 1930s up through to the 70s was a major center of, of hashish production in the Hindu Kush uh, after Xinjiang shut down. But then uh, in around sort of 1979-ish, um, uh, I, I believe it was, uh, the Pakistani government suddenly became very strict about production in that particular area. And so started to very heavily enforce uh, prohibition uh, there uh, relative to how it much it had done before. And... Um, always promised the Chitralis that they up in Yakun and places that they would provide them with an alternative source of, of income, uh, which, you know, they never actually sort of made good on that promise. Mm. So this has left communities that would otherwise have been uh, ma- making money out of commercial hash production in a, mm. in a really pretty bad situation. Uh, essentially what you have now is that, um, most most families get have their main source of income from their uh, kids working down in the cities like Peshawar and Islamabad, and they'll send they'll send money home uh, when they have it. But of course, with the lockdown, I mean, a lot of the people have lost their uh, jobs there, and uh, you know, so you actually do have uh, the poorer families up in Chitral are, are all sort of uh, small scale subsistence farmers, so they're in a very precarious situation just in terms of having enough food to get through uh the covid crisis so yeah i have i have uh friends i've known up there for many years who uh i've been sending uh you know cash to 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 help them do food drops to families and i i invited people on instagram if they wanted to contribute so you know if people are interested they can email me or or, or follow me on instagram uh, at the real seed company uh, and and uh, just drop me a, a direct message, and I'll send them away to that they they can send money to to me because uh, I know a lot of people are, are are nervous about sending money to Pakistan or or, mm-hmm. or just, uh, don't want to have to pay for the uh, transfer fees or to go through right. all, yeah. all all the nonsense of MoneyGram where you have to provide all your passport details and stuff. So they they can just PayPal me money basically, and I'll send it to my friend, and and he'll uh, he he'll do the food drops. He's been sending me lots of photos of uh, of him. Um, hauling bags of rice to, to to families and stuff, and it's it's genuinely, really, I can I can tell you, uh, sincerely appreciated by people. They're extremely grateful for it, and uh, because they because they need it, basically. You know, it's not just a yeah. for show. You know, yeah, and it it puts things into perspective. I think for people that live in places like the United States or the UK or you know any of these you know more um um wealthy areas that you know i i look around and i see people you know here in the united states complaining about what's going on with stay-at-home orders and all these sort of things and they they act as if they're so negatively affected and in some ways sure they are i mean there are mental health problems uh, all sorts of other things with people you know having to be stuck at home and with job insecurity and everything but the people that we're talking about right now are experiencing a totally other level um, of challenge um, with this issue um, that I think hope my hope in sharing the story and, and and I'm going to be talking about this more on my own Instagram, try to get people pointed towards you is 
I hope that it helps people kind of stop a little bit and think about what they're complaining about and what their actual situation is in life compared to to others around the world because we get so caught up in our narrow tunnel vision of of a life that sometimes we forget that you know when stuff like this happens i mean there are people that literally have no food like like we can still if we need to go to a grocery store and and get food yeah we've got to wear masks and do all of these different things and take precautions but we're still able to get food um, there are places in the world that don't have that luxury. Um, and so bringing attention to that is something I, I feel very, um, I don't know, very led to do. I think it's a very important thing. And I really appreciate the fact that you're, you know, trying to do that work. Oh yeah. I mean, thanks. I mean, it's, it's, it's a drop in the ocean, but it, it, feels, yeah. it feels good to be, it's a privilege in a way to be able to help people. And it feels good to actually uh, help out, um, I mean, it, for me, it all fits into the a sort of bigger picture in which these uh, these communities, these margin, very marginalised uh, rural uh, communities, they're the, they're the same communities that have kept these land races going mm -hmm. through pro prohibition, you know, despite the efforts of the Pakistani government to wipe out cultivation in Yarkun. People still did grow; they grew in between their maize crops. They grew up in the mountains. They, they did they did maintain these land races, mm -hmm. and you know they're they're the people who've who've kept these ancient, uh, highly biodiverse populations going all this time. They're the people who are growing the plants that all our modern hybrids are based upon. You know, yeah. so I mean, ideally, once once we've returned to normality uh, and, and put an end to prohibition, which is happening, it's happening in Nepal and it's slowly happening in Thailand, uh, these these communities will benefit once again from, from cannabis in the way that they should have been. It, it was a lifeline to them through prohibition. But it, you know, prohibition itself sort of, in many cases, forced the plant up into these more obscure places. Uh, in some in some cases, it just kept going in these old places like Rolper and Rookham and Balk and and so on. But anyway, I mean, you know, these these people, if anyone deserves to to have a fair cut out of of, of the money to be made from cannabis, uh, are, are the people who should be getting it. You know? So I see it as yeah. a kind of natural justice to 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 try and you know, direct some of the the benefit back towards these people. So. Yeah, I mean, and that's such an important thing that um, I've been thinking more and more about lately is this um, social equity piece, you know, how you have people that have been doing the work for long periods of time to ensure that cannabis has gotten to where it is now. And so how do you ensure that those people that really deserve to profit off of an economy that includes cannabis, how do you ensure they actually get in on on that? And, you know, in the United States, the one of the big problems with legalization that's happened here is you look at the prisons and you look at the, mm. you know, who's been jailed for cannabis over the years in the United States. And um, there, there aren't, I mean, there are by nonprofits and stuff, there are efforts, but there isn't a strong voice in the federal government yet about trying to release these people from prison or expunge records, yeah. ensure that they're able to actually participate in the economy that they've actually contributed to supporting to get it to this point, you know, so far. And you also see that that predominantly affects people of color. Um, just the way that um, racism has also affected the yeah. application of cannabis laws um, and so this, the social equity piece, I think is really important. And anyone listening, I think it's something that we really need to start, um, 
thinking about and talking about a lot more because these dominoes are going to fall fast when they do. Legalization is happening all over the world, and as it's as it happens one place, more places view it as an acceptable thing to do, and there's this influence happening, um, and yep. especially when you see the money involved and everything. Um, so we're we're going through this massive change, and we run the risk of really you know, to put it very bluntly, really screwing over the people that deserve to really benefit the most from this, that have been suffering in various ways or taking enormous risks to get things to where they are now. So, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of pieces to this, but even beyond just the humanitarian side, uh, the social equity piece of, of what you're trying to do to ensure that these people are able to be active participants in the economy and and begin to benefit the way that they deserve is is excellent so um thanks for that and hopefully anyone listening will really take that to heart and, and think more carefully about about that dynamic can yeah just because i i know you i know you're sort of wanting to draw this to a close but just to say sure. i think with with land races there that there, there is potential for um uh to, to find a sort of a solution to, 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 to what you're talking about, which is that um, something akin to what uh, they have in the EU with the uh, Appalachian Controle, uh, this, um, which they apply to various types of liquor and cheese and all kinds of things. I see. But, um, essentially, uh, for example, uh, first class Napoli hashish, um, it, 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 can only, it can only be the, the real thing if it's produced with the real land race from, say, Rukum mm -hmm. or Ropa or somewhere in, in Rukum and Ropa. So, you know, it's essentially a kind of combination of the, ter the terroir, uh, to use yeah. the term, and, and the plant itself, the, the, the land race itself. So the way I see it, there, 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 there should be a solution that there is a potential solution there to to sort of safeguard the, the, these communities' rights to these plants and these products, uh, and I and, and I don't mean to in any way sort of suggest that there isn't huge room for improvement of these land races. I mean that mm -hmm. you could have sort of in 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 somewhere like Nepal, which is internally as, as far as I understand it has already uh, legalized everything. So. Um, you could have pr projects in somewhere like Rukum or Ropa, where you have, uh, you know, one branch of it is aimed at maintaining the land race in its, mm -hmm. in its pure form. Uh, another is in, aimed at actually improving the land race, inbreeding it, mm -hmm. and stabilizing certain characteristics, and and producing a, a plant that you know can compete with the best modern hybrids in in, in whatever characteristics you want, and 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 you can ensure that these these uh, products. Uh, uh, are authentic. I, 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 another interest of mine is is tea, and I, I lived in Taiwan for many years. And uh, from what I know of what they're doing in in the um, TRES and these various uh, sort of Taiwanese um, state sort of uh, funded or state uh, run projects, they're talking about using stuff like uh, uh, what do you call it? Your crypto. Uh, so these um, Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, yeah, cryptocurrencies. Bit yeah. Uh, but not the currencies, but the actual sort of uh, oh, the blockchain technology. Blockchain, that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't know if it, I read a few studies about it, and I had friends who were discussing it. But a real problem they have in somewhere like Taiwan is that they have, uh, you know, they have this fantastic terroir. They have these amazing cultivars mm -hmm. that they use, 
and they have an incredibly high quality uh, tea produced in the mountains there. But the problem is that they're also having their market flooded by Vietnamese tea, which can be surprisingly good sort of Vietnamese oolongs. Uh, and, and, but it's very difficult for um, Taiwanese on the Taiwanese market to know if you're getting the real thing or not. But they're talking about using blockchain technologies and, and this kind of thing to ensure that the supply, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, that they, they know that this is the real, the real deal, basically. So, right. You, uh, you basically have like a, a validated ledger to work with so that yeah. there's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, this is, that's this, yeah, these are things I've been pondering about. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ad-libbing, but you know, that, that to me seems like a, a, a route ahead and there must be some kind of way that you can use it, this, uh, mm -hmm. this type of scenario that I've described to ensure that, you know, only real Nepali charis is 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 sold as Nepali charis, and and the same the same the same goes for communities in Humboldt, and you know communities in New York State, and 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 so on that yep. have have been hit very hard by prohibition, and and and, and at the minute are not being served well by legalization. Uh, that you can use this kind of terroir yep. appellation control a type system to ensure that authenticity and sort of economic justice, and, and not just. Yeah, and then also redressing some of the wrongs of prohibition, you know. So um, exactly, yeah. I know that. Um, <clears throat> I know that. I think it's um, medicinal genomics um, uses uh, blockchain technology to um, handle the ledgers involved with the um, genetic sequencing that they do on cannabis plants to try to um, basically ensure that, like, once they've analyze something and assigned it, you know, a unique ID, because obviously they, they don't rely on strain names or anything. They have these just very confusing, just series of letters and numbers. That is like the unique code for that um, sample of genetics. And that as that moves around databases or whatever, they can um, use blockchain technology to ensure the integrity um, of that. And it's a way of ensuring that basically a third party can't come in and manipulate things in some way um, that would then, um, you know, sabotage the efforts of breeders and that sort of thing. So I agree with you. And I think that blockchain technology, the way you're talking about using it, I think it's going to spread throughout um, agriculture and nursery plants in general. I mean, cause this is something that it affects roses, it affects grapes, you know, all these different things that you need to be able to, um, as a as a breeder, be able to protect yourself if you're introducing um, new genetics, and there traditionally have been these registries um, for nursery plants and crops and things like that. But like I just pointed out, they can be manipulated, they can be fudged by other parties, that sort of thing. They're not necessarily totally protected. There's sort of a, a trust that's placed into them, um, but integrating things like blockchain technology can then eliminate the need for trust altogether. You just know based on the way that it's designed and the way it's structured um, that everything is, is safe from um, manipulation and that the, the information being shared is traceable and true. Yeah, I mean, um, hopefully once um, McPartland and Small sort of do that, what, what I assume is going to be their next uh, study and, and they start looking at the, um, you know, contemporary accessions, mm -hmm. and they, perhaps that combined with the uh, genetic analysis and stuff can actually prove that there are authentic 
you know, what's mm -hmm. authentic, what's not, what has been hybridized with modern hybrids, what hasn't. Um, it's going to be very complicated because as, as we sort yeah. of briefly touched on, many land races are hybrids of land races, or probably all land races are hybrids of land races, but some some going, you know, some as with like Lao and Thai ganja plants are hybrids that happened many hundreds of years ago. Some are things exactly. that have been created since the 70s, like Lebanese yep. uh, land races in Bekaa Valley. But I mean, it, it's, it'll be tricky and it's far beyond my sort of ken, but I, I imagine if they can do that and establish what's 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 authentic and what's not, and then you can you can com combine that with all these other ways of ensuring authenticity. I think mm -hmm. that's what everyone's really looking for now. And I think that's why more people are getting interested in land races is because we're all looking for authenticity these days and it's distinctly mm -hmm. lacking in so many places, you know. <laughs> and that's true on just like a philosophical level. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we are we're at the stage where we're so tired of artificiality and yeah. are looking for authenticity in so so many levels. Um <laughs> and and cannabis is definitely one of those. Yeah. Um well before we totally sign off, I want to give you um a moment if there's anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to to make sure to highlight or if not um then just go ahead and let folks know how to um learn more about the real seed company you know you've got your blog um i'm not going to assume that anyone listening to this has heard our first interview so um you know you've got the real seed company you've also got quick seeds um you've got your um, blog where you share a lot of your thoughts on on these issues as well as as well as like linking to conversations like this that we have. Um, so I'll just kind of hand over the platform to you if there's anything related to anything we've uh, talked about that you feel like is a gap we need to touch on, we can do that. Um, otherwise, we'll go ahead and wrap things up and let people know how to um, support you and find you. Yeah, sorry, there was a there was a real delay on the light the line just there. I'm sure you can fix it all in the edit. But um, yeah, yeah, um, th th there are there are quite sort of specific aspects of of uh, some of the supplementary material of this study that uh, that that I that I'm still pondering that I've sort of briefly mentioned, like the the question of um, exactly how old or new uh, the classic kind of ganja um, uh, land races are. Um, uh, it's it's maybe it's just a personal obsession of mine, but I have, I think they 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 misrepresent some of the academic studies that they've used, suggesting that ganja land races go back to the 13th century. <laughs> I I if you actually look at the the academic um, Moylan Bell, I think his name is, I've I've managed to find the papers, and I think they've just uh, misread what he said. Uh, he he says there's not much evidence for that. For, Basically, you don't see the, the name Ganja until the 16th century, really. There's Ganja Kurt and a couple of other things, but dating these texts that he's talking about is notoriously difficult. So, yeah. it, but it, it, my, my theory is that the creation of these types of high potency, uh, high THC um, South Asian land races is, is something that really was catalyzed by the introduction of tobacco and the practice of smoking them with tobacco. You do have cannabis smoking, obviously going way back at least to two, two, and, a, two and a half thousand years at least. Mm -hmm. and, and you have pipes for smoking in, that they've um, found in Africa 
because I mean, smoking in pipes goes way, way back in Africa as well. Water pipes and stuff. It's it's extremely <laughs> old there, but they've found uh, cannabis smoked in pipes in Africa in the uh, sort of uh, I, I think it's the thirteenth century ish kind of era. So yeah, and how far back do like chillums go and that sort of thing? I mean, that's well, I mean, going on a while. It's it's a it's one of those things rather like the diffusion of cannabis and, and the sort of mm -hmm. hybridization of, of I'm talking sort of medieval era hybridization of land races. It's, it, it's extremely hard to know what's going in what direction and what's coming from where and is it backwards and forwards. It, it, it's almost certainly like to be likely to be a highly complicated picture of mm -hmm. going in both directions. Um, but uh, my, my theory is that, that, that uh, um, the, the tobacco was the key factor in, 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 in India that drove the uh, selection for potency. Because if, if you look at, say, um, uh, Garcia Dorta, who's this uh, uh, Portuguese uh, Sephardic uh, Jew, he, he was in Goa in the, in the, in the uh, early 1500s. He doesn't talk about ganja at all. And you'd, you'd think if there was ganja there, he would have at least picked up on it. I mean, he was a botanist, but he just talks right. about he talks about bung and likewise you don't you don't see this term ganja until at least the 16th century it doesn't really seem to get going until much later than that uh, there's a there's a guy called thomas bowery who was a british merchant who was uh, um uh he was trading across the bay of bengal between sumatra and india and he knew the commodities there extremely well and he's a very reliable source if you if you read all his stuff he seems to be on the money with pretty much everything and he um he he, he says that in india in 1670 what they grew in india was bung and he's very clear that bung is a different plant from ganja and that sort of fits with what my understanding of this would be because i mean bung itself as a, as a word people keep saying it's a hindi word it, it is a hindi word it's in hindi but it, it goes back to sort of 500 BC Iranian uh, middle middle Persian they call it. But it, it's a very very old word. It can apply to uh, to tura, to henbane, or to cannabis. So if you're looking, oh, at, okay. If you're looking at early Indian uh, texts like the Atava Veda, mm -hmm. they talk about bang in there. And of course, everyone likes to think that's cannabis, and may, maybe it is cannabis, but we don't know for sure. It could be a, any number of plants and. Mm -hmm. I, I keep getting distracted onto different points, but the point is my, my sort of picture I've got is, is that bung is in, is certainly in India as in cannabis, as in a sort of uh, a central Asian type way of using cannabis is, is already in India. Certainly by the 11th century, it starts, this term bang starts to appear in medical texts and that kind of thing. And, and this guy, Moylenbelt, who McParland and Small refer to, he's clear that, 11th century, really 13th century is the sort of point at which you can say, yes, if they're talking about bang in this mm -hmm. text, they're talking about cannabis. I so see. It's yeah. clear by that point, bang is, is a thing in India. You see them, uh, early Muslims in the 11th century sort of talk about um, what may well be fumigation type use of cannabis in temples. Mm -hmm. They certainly talk about using it to get stoned. Uh, but you don't really have a, a definitively talking about bang until the 13th century which we discussed in the previous podcast was this really important point at which you have this explosion out of central asia of hashish the, the hashish sieving technique goes across into the middle east suddenly your cannabis is everywhere people are getting stoned everywhere all the way across north africa and it seems to be a very crucial point in india as well and and it's at the point at which you have the delhi sultanate this muslim culture is establishing itself in india 
so uh, Indians, are, certain types of Indians are going to hate me for this because <laughs> it's basically sort of suggesting that the Muslims introduced cannabis to India, <laughs> uh, live with it. Uh, the, yeah. uh, um, the, uh, but, you know, as for actually Ganja itself, uh, Bowery, this guy in the late 17th century is saying, all you have in India is this, he calls it a crude type of plant with large leaves that's bung, whereas Ganja is all coming from Sumatra in a place called Aceh, which is a very significant place on the northwest tip of uh, Sumatra, which was a sort of trading point, very prosperous, ah, okay. point, yeah. going between places like, uh, you know, what's now Cambodia and, and Thailand and sort of, you know, linking that through the Bay of Bengal through to mm -hmm. places like what's now Calcutta and uh, the Malabar coast and, you know, a, a major trade route. But Bowery is very clear, he's saying ganja was coming from Sumatra all they had in, uh, in in India was bang, that bang was a very cheap product, that ganja was much sought after in the Sumatra and ganja. He said it was much addicting to venery, as in people were smoking mm -hmm. a lot of it and uh, having a night on the town. <laughs> and gotcha. uh, and uh, anyway, it was it was a much more expensive uh, it was a much more mm -hmm. expensive product. It sold for sort of many multiples of the price of bang. So you know, my hunch is that we should pay attention to what Barry says. That he's probably onto it because he should know. I mean, this guy was—he was there to make money. He was—he mm -hmm. was trading. He knew what the products were because he was—he was taking advantage of of the disparities in spices and this uh, prices mm -hmm. of spices and this type of stuff to make his living. And he was based out there for a long, long time. Now, it's not to say that Indians didn't develop ganja, but because the Indians were based in Aceh and they were probably growing it, but mm -hmm. it's quite possible that the sort of it may well be, who knows, but the, the earliest sort of center of creation of these things was actually uh, of this practice of selecting for potency and, and and creating what we now think of as sensimilia, you know, this proper seed, mm -hmm. seedless product. Um, uh, and you, that links with what you were saying about the aromas of these types of mm -hmm. uh, South Asian land races. Now, uh, Lamarck himself not, uh, noted it, that, that they smelled like tobacco. Now, that's uh, also, the case with Achenese, uh ganja has this very tobacco-y kind of aroma, as does uh, Lao, and, and certain types of Thai uh, have this quite tobacco-y aroma. And it's blended with sort of fruity scents. And, you know, when it's really good, it's sweeter. But, of course, that sweet sativa characteristic, that's a, something that's going to require a lot of selective pressure, as with good tea and that type of stuff. You know, those very high levels of the amino acids and stuff that are responsible mm -hmm. for that type of thing as far as i understand it now that may well be a sign of deterioration of quality since the 70s that i i haven't i have seen it in good tie and stuff but it's what i've mostly seen is sort of herbal aromas tobacco-y types of aromas sort of leathery tobacco-y aromas that you you tend to find in in my experience in tropical uh ganja but it was something that was blended with tobacco uh, very early on and smoked and i think that highly addictive kind of combination of tobacco yeah. And, and cannabinoids is what really catalyzed this to become a commodity that was traded for, for uh, from in, from Central Asia into India and from Southeast Asia across to India and so on. The demand for it, because <clears throat> it's around that same time that Barry was there that really tobacco had established itself as a crop in India, and it's that same time that the Uzbeks and and actually probably Tajiks were were, were first recorded as, as as introducing into Iran this practice of smoking charas with uh, tobacco. Uh, you know interesting wow yeah, yeah. so it all comes down to spliffs yeah well yes yeah, <laughs> and, and chillums and bongs and all kinds yeah. of things I mean, everyone everyone 
in my experience, in all these parts, they all smoke it with tobacco. Everyone does. It's very, very seldom you meet someone who smokes pure. And, and I like to smoke pure. And when people see you smoking mm -hmm. pure, they're like, oh, bloody hell, do you really want to smoke it pure? You're going to get too high, you know? <laughs> like, That's the point, man. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, they, 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 uh, everyone likes to smoke it with tobacco. You know, it's, uh, it's a very addictive combination. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fascinating. Yeah. That's something that, uh, personally I've, I've never really enjoyed the, uh, the tobacco edition. Um, sometimes it can, yeah, just really not, not sit well with me. I can't deal um, with cognitive dissonance. I, I don't want to smoke something that I'm gonna have to worry that it's going to give me cancer. It, it's just, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, what's the point, you know? Anyway. Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, sometimes it'll, I mean, depending on, and which this is funny because sometimes I do smoke cigars. I do like tobacco cigars usually yeah, like okay. a few times, a few times a year, but, um, so I can handle tobacco, but for some reason that mixture with cannabis, it is so prone to giving me the spins. Mm. I just, uh, I don't know. It's just something that I just, I'm like, I don't, I don't mess with that, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, that I, is. Full agreement. It, 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 I think it's a, it's a dirty, a dirty sort of feeling you get from it as well. It just, it, 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 it takes the edge off the buzz as well. I think it. Yeah. And, and particularly, you know, um, a, a lot of uh, Indian ganja, for example, isn't always that potent. It, it, it mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's again, that's another whole issue that the type of use of traditional use in in India is um, uh, is a tonic. You know, it, it, um, mm -hmm. there's some good books on this. People weren't necessarily smoking to get high. They were smoking to take the edge off very hard manual labor, difficult lifestyles like being a, a wandering ascetic, not having enough food, that type of thing. They weren't necessarily looking to, to get wasted. They, they, they were actually looking to make life a bit easier. Uh, yeah. So that's another whole conversation. But Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's super, super fascinating. All these cultural differences uh, between uh, how people relate to cannabis. is so, so fascinating. Yeah. And I love... Every time we get together and talk, it's always so fascinating because I can always trust that our conversations are going to go in directions I don't expect, but that are super, super fascinating. Um, so that's that's just another another one of those. Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to to be able to sort of rant for, especially after having read uh, uh, read these papers because my mind is sort of full of ideas, and unfortunately, my girl I know, yeah listen to me talking about it sometimes and, and there's a limit to how much she can put up with so to finally get to talk to talk about it with someone who actually understands what i'm talking about and really appreciates it is is, is, a, is a privilege it's really good fun um yeah yeah definitely I've, I've really enjoyed it and if um you know as usual the invitation is always out there if anything pops in your mind um that we didn't go into that you want to dive into later um don't hesitate to let me know because i always enjoy our conversations and our listeners seem to enjoy them our conversations uh or our last interview is uh one of the most popular it is the most popular episode um that we've done um yeah it's it was actually really cool on youtube um someone commented and they said <laughs> i i i was i was really humbled by this they said just like um the land race strains that need to be collected and preserved conversations between these two people need to be collected and preserved. It was super, super nice. I really appreciated it. So anyway, I need to uh, wrap this up and get going, but it was a really yeah. good pleasure connecting with you again um, as always. And I'm sure we'll have more to talk about soon. And I know 
just like we've alluded to, I know McPartland and Small have more up their sleeve. They're, oh, I, that's you know, cool. yeah, you know yeah. that's going to be coming down the pipeline in the next, if if not really soon, within the next few years, I'm sure we'll see yeah. um, more elaborations on the scheme. And I, you know, it's funny. Um, our first interview, I asked you if you had to pick a tax, if you had to pick a taxonomical model to go with, even though we know that none of them are good enough, which one would you choose? And you said, well, I really like small and Cronquist and the way that they um, handled things. And so it's so funny that jump forward, you know, from the seventies, from when small and Cronquist first, uh, you know, published uh, their papers on that, you know, you jump ahead to 2020 and we've got McPartland and small coming together and, you know, essentially taking what they had started and just elaborating it into a more cohesive scheme based on, on what we know now. So um seems like we were on the right track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um anyway, uh for everyone listening or wa- or uh watching the audiogram of this on YouTube, um thanks so much for for tuning in with us. Um I'm sure we'll have more to share with you soon. Um but if you want to learn more about the Real Seed Company, go to the realseedcompany.com, um also uh quickseeds.com, k w i k seeds.com. Uh, find that we've got the story behind that name um, I think in the last episode but um, you can find Angus there it's got great content and you know there are a lot of seed providers out there but um, I don't I don't know if I've ever told the story about how you and I connected uh, which might be kind of worthwhile to throw in here at the very end but the way that Angus and I got connected was I had posted online a timeline of cannabis taxonomy that I was using for um, some of my uh, seminars and stuff. And there was a bit in there about um, some of the work that Vavilov uh, particularly had done. And uh, you had commented on there and you were like, I don't, I don't know if this is quite right. And we got into this uh, very um, civilized discussion about our disagreements about trying to understand what was going on with the taxonomy here, which then led to, well, do you want to come on the podcast and we'll just talk about it? And it, it just, it was a, I don't know. It, it's really nice when you meet somebody that can um, disagree or criticize in a um, in a very respectful and and professional way, and and then that led me to look into the Real Seed Company and all of the work that you do. And I just I continue to be impressed by your dedication to try to get the facts right, try to understand what we know, share it with people. And when something's wrong, you don't hesitate to say, hey, I was wrong about this, or I made changes to this. Um, I said this at this time, but now I think this. Um, that's unfortunately a rare trait in a lot of a lot of folks these days, but it's something that I uh, really, really appreciate. And that's that's how we came together and how these these discussions got started. So I thought it was cool to, to just share that. And um, I appreciate you being willing to give up so much of your time. I said this wouldn't be a three-hour interview, but here we are at two hours and 40 minutes. Um, so collectively, we've got over <laughs> five hours of content just for, just between you and me talking, but I really appreciate you being willing to, to carve out the time and, and do this again. It's It's been awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Thanks. Awesome. All right, everybody, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, as usual, you can go to cacpodcast.com. Also, um, as an aside, I don't know when this will come out, but I am working on finishing up the second edition of the Curious About Cannabis book. This paper is a large reason of why I have not released the second edition yet, because 
I got it pretty much ready to go. And then this paper dropped and I was like, well, now I have to rewrite my whole chapter on taxonomy um, to include all of this. And there's so much good info here. So um, that has been delayed, but it's still coming. So probably by uh, late summer uh, or early fall, um, the second edition of that book will um, will hit the shelf. So be on the lookout for that. And if you want to support the work that that I'm doing with these conversations and and some of the cannabis education work that I'm doing at large, um, please head on over to patreon.com slash curious about cannabis and you can become a, a member, a patron. And basically on that platform, I try to release episodes as quickly as I get them edited so that patrons get early access. There's also bits and pieces of conversations that don't always make it in the final episodes. And I um, sometimes will package those up and, and release those to members to thank you for the support. And there's other ways I'm trying to um, figure out ways to, to thank everyone that's been supporting the work that I've been doing so far. So thanks to our patrons. And, and if you're interested in that, check that out. Otherwise, find Curious About Cannabis on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. And with that, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time. Take it easy and stay curious. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.